Welcome back to America Speaks. Presently, in our national crisis with regards to our democracy and the daily deluge of political chaos in Washington, fueled by Donald Trump, what I am mindful of is that we are seduced by every manner of political jousting, and we are ignoring the human crisis that is escalating for some in our country. We are failing miserably to meet the needs of the most vulnerable, low-income households who have indeed felt the cold arm of this Trump administration with program after program for assistance canceled. Families who are struggling to feed their children, seniors who have to choose between food or medicine, and a homeless population that is spiraling out of control across our country. Tracy McMillan recently wrote in the National Geographic magazine, to witness hunger in America today is to enter a twilight zone where refrigerators are so frequently bare of all but mustard and ketchup that it provokes no remark, inspires no embarrassment. Here, dinners are cooked using macaroni and cheese mixes and other processed ingredients from food pantries, and fresh fruits and vegetables are eaten only in the first days after the SNAP payment arrives. Here, you'll meet hungry farmhands and retired school teachers, hungry families who are in the United States without papers and hungry families whose histories stretch back to the Mayflower, here pocketing food from work and skipping meals to make food stretch are so common that such practices barely register as a way of coping with hunger and are simply a way of life. Today, I am so inspired to introduce you to Linda Hess and her Urban Harvester. This remarkable organization fills a void and behind the scenes supplies real nourishment to our most needy. Welcome to America Speaks, Linda. Thank you, Tish. I'm very glad to be here, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this. Well, you know, you and I have known each other a while, and I've had the privilege of watching your amazing organization come to life. So I want to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and about Urban Harvester. Linda Hess is the founder and CEO of Urban Harvester. Since 2009, Linda and her organization have focused their expertise towards humanitarian and environmental solutions, offering a fresh perspective to the challenges of hunger and needless food waste. Linda's efforts have partnered with national and local food providers, connecting their donations to at-risk communities, lifting people up in times of their greatest need. Linda's passion and expertise has impacted local and national platforms and partners in food donation policies, reuse and prevention, as well as program and educational outreach. Linda has received the President's Volunteer Service Award, as well as the Woman of the Year Award from Congressman Judy Chu. 
She serves as an advisor, consultant, and task force member in areas of environmental health, sustainability, public works, and community resiliency and engagement. Linda, it is such a pleasure to have you as a guest today, and we are also delighted once again to include our producer, Kim Langbacker. So, Linda, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about Urban Harvester? What compelled you to fill this void? And what really provoked you to start Urban Harvester? I'm going to start with a visual. And Tish, thank you for the lovely introduction. Think about a four-way stop sign if there were no stoplights and no stop signs. And everyone was passing through but not noticing what was going on at all the corners. You have hunger and you have extra food and you have outdated policies and you have people on all sides of it, touching it, moving it, dealing with it, but not realizing that one person's extra could make all the difference in the world to a person who may be needed it. And what we've done is we've become the center point. We and many others in the United States in this very strange time in 2009 realized that there was a disconnect between all of this opportunity of making a difference to change people's lives. And that's where we started. And it started with me by holding a plate. I was at a memorial service and Someone was packing up the meal that I thought was for the family. It ended up being for seniors that were around the corner. And I didn't get that until I went with him and did an actual visit bringing some extra food that the dire circumstances of people falling through the cracks was happening in the middle of a metropolitan downtown area. And there were senior citizens that I discovered who had nothing in their cupboards but cat food in one and no sheets on her bed and nothing in her closet. How do you walk away? How do you walk away? I couldn't. So I went to a grocery store and found out that they had all this extra food and that they also were starting just in the beginning of sharing it. And then I started to say, well, who else has this food? Looked at schools and realized that there were some policies that were about to come together that could help connect the community and got a desperate call from a school teacher who said the same thing, that kids were leaving school on Friday and coming to school hysterical on Monday morning because they had no other food access until they had just gotten back to school. It was these disconnects that you realize who else had food to give, where else was it needed, And I couldn't find anyone else doing this at the time. So I just dug in and started to uncover piece by piece what was broken, what were the pieces that were needed to come together, and how do you make a solution happen? So you started this in your living room, right? And you would just collect the food and you had a very small group of busy bees that came over and what, load up a van and then just... Actually, it never even got warehoused with us. We created from the very beginning 
um, I called it the hot potato effect, where it was fresh, perishable food, and it went straight from a grocer or a caterer, whatever the food provider might be who had the excess food, straight to a nonprofit center that was providing meals or groceries. And that's when I realized there were so many complicated pieces to this about logistics and storage and food safety and timing and all of it. So Mm -hmm. from my living room, but no food ever did anything but move from literally the donation site to the receiving site. And that's the way we've kept it. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of this, because I think our listeners might think, well, you know, I do my bit. Just give us a few facts on the staggering hunger in the United States today. Anybody who's got access to a computer can go online and see these numbers verified, but the national stats are one in every six people are unsure of where their next meal will come from. In the United States, correct? In the United States, that's correct. And the numbers are even greater sometimes depending on the size of the city and what the access is. And then when you look at that, then you have to parallel those facts and figures to food waste, correct? Exactly. And when you look at one in six people are unsure of where their next meal will come from, and then 40% of the food produced in this country never gets to a table. Well, you know, we are a nation of overconsumption in every which way you look at it, actually. And we are also a nation that is further dividing between income equality. We are also the wealthiest nation in the world. So let's begin on a human note. It's an overwhelming notion to take food that's wasted and find a way to supply it to people who are starving. So is there one group or one person that you look back on that you thought, oh my God, I have got to do this and make this my life? Well, there were several of those moments. And every time I think that there won't be another one that will make a difference or move me because maybe I've been doing it for too long, I continue to be just absolutely taken back by the gratitude or the impact. And early on, this was not wasted food in the sense that it had ever gotten to a dumpster. This was still sitting in the grocery store. And at 11.59, it was still sellable. And at 12.01, it was no longer sellable. So you're talking about a margin of moments between the excess food and still sellable food. But I was bringing it to a homeless shelter, and they were providing at the time what I didn't know what was called wraparound services. And those services were literally lifting people up to address housing and hunger and education and mental health and all the different things that they needed for both individuals and for kids and families. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that the dollars were being stretched because the food was being given to them. And the head chef was able to tell me that 10% of their overall budget was now able to go back into programs. This is no longer the Band-Aid. This was what I saw 
as truly my contribution of a solution that to change things from just treating the symptoms to truly helping the best of the organizations out there to address the symptoms and the problems. So do you have an opportunity or did you at the beginning of actually individually seeing people return or groups return or was there an intersection between you and the delivery where you could actually take some comfort into this being something that would fill the void? Very much. And the clients at one of the weekly food banks for people who had life-threatening illnesses, when I could hear, and they didn't know who I was, but when I could hear them talking about how their health was being improved, how their strength was being improved, how the need for maybe additional medication was starting to drop off, you realize, again, proper nutrition, access to good food, a quality of life brings back so many things past food. It brings self-esteem. It brings joy. And those were definitely those moments where I walked out of there and just had no idea how profound something like that could be, how moving and how this was the beginning of something that could be so much bigger and so much more impactful. Let's talk about the tools for prevention of the overconsumption. Give us some understanding here. I mean, there's a very quick answer, Tish. There are barriers to prevention that can be corrected. One of them is purchasing and the other is prevention. Mm -hmm. In purchasing, it's a definite high and low levels of impact, but in two seconds, you may start to really see what I'm talking about. From the farmer who's got all of this great stuff, let's use a farm example, they've got all this great, let's say melons, and they're sitting there and they've grown it and they've given it the sunshine and the food and everything it needs. And now somebody's coming up and saying, this melon has too much rind. This melon doesn't fit in the bin the right way. And so therefore we're going to reject it. And that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars that now have been rejected because of imperfection. Start there with the fact that we have become so compartmentalized that it has to fit in, quote, the right size box. And then all the way down to how we choose things when we're buying them, how the restaurants are choosing things that they are providing to us. Everybody is playing a part in this responsibility. And then there's prevention. And nobody is thinking about the hunger that lurks for so many families. I want you to tell us the story of when you stood on that farmland and you had that very emotional moment. We spoke about that a, a while back. I do, very clearly. I just kept working backwards from we're standing in the grocery and that's the very last moment of possibly saving the food. And then you go all the way back to the very beginning of when it's first being grown. And, you know, it's like standing there watching this arch. And now I'm at the very first moments of that arch. And the farmer, like I was just talking about, who was telling me that the sizing metrics or the cost of goods may have not been what they could afford to do. And here I am, or in this case, and I'll, I'll jump to that in a minute about the labor force, but I was staring at 100,000 pounds of watermelons that he was telling me, as I'm looking at the field of the ones left on the ground, 
100,000 pounds had been harvested, but not sold. Instead, they had to be donated. It's all about how picky we were. And when I first began, I would ask people about the labor and whether or not they had you know, enough people, were they amply staffed, how many are more local. And you know, people have fluidity in your staffing, but everyone said there was enough workforce for the most part that they could get done what they needed to do. Six months ago, I asked the same question, both to farmers markets, farmers, and big production farms. And it was starting to change where they were like, with the immigration things, they were saying more were afraid to come to work and more were hesitant to show up. When I talked to the farmers a week ago, there wasn't one single food producer who was not being historically impacted with the lack of a labor force. It has an impact today with what's laying on the ground, and it has an impact on our tomorrow with what's not going to be planted so that it can be grown and picked a year and two from now. We're facing an additional crisis, and why is that, I may ask? Uh, Kim, do you have thoughts on that? Well, I find it to be a little disingenuous when our fearless leader requests workers who have immigrant in their status for his own purposes, and yet our farmers are struggling with finding the kind of labor force that they need. You know, Beyond that, it seems pretty obvious why that situation is happening. We've had an extraordinary opportunity to interview Enrique Moronis, who is the founder of Border Angels. And recently he was saying that we in the United States are purposely blind to what it takes to put fresh produce on the table. There is so much that we don't want to think about here. So when you are a day laborer and you are coming across, first of all, you are dealing with so much extra security. You are also dealing with the threat of something going wrong upon your return. What I'm getting at is when we put a threat in their way that also could end up costing them more than the day's work they have gotten and also causing them delays because of all the extra red tape at the border, what is the solution here? There are people you are interviewing in this series who are much more on the front lines of this part of it. But what I've been told is the supply and demand may have a real challenge. And these are guys that are not being hired by the day. They're being hired basically by the crop season. And the outside edge of the grocery store tends to be the most handpicked of the food sources that are grown by the U.S. farmers. If this goes away, if the stores and the restaurants and everyone who is purchasing food chooses to buy the ones that are grown in Chile and South America or wherever it is, and it's being exported and coming into the United States, then the cost of our labor, the value of goods and the workforce shortages, all of that's going to go away because there won't be an industry anymore. This is a staggering fact. And then you add this to the reality of the perfection model of our food, So what we're really talking about here is that our food prices have the full potential of skyrocketing, correct? If there is an oil embargo and we are importing our food, then our cost of goods will be even further. 
are checks and balances for what our USDA and all of the integrity of how our food is looked at and checked, it's all not necessarily going to fall in the same safe zones as what we all know and expect. Well, and then also you're having a tireless effort on a daily basis, your organization, Urban Harvester, of supplying food to the most needy, to the hungry. Everybody with any kind of budget has to really work hard to put healthy, fresh food on the table. And for those of us that also are concerned about pesticides, et cetera, et cetera, and what goes into the growing of our food, you add that as an extra pressure for any kind of budget. It becomes undoable, really. So now what you're looking at is a set of circumstances that once again really does not serve the greater economy of this country and therefore will definitely create a domino effect. So Urban Harvester have already been very successful in creating a roadmap, as it were, to fill the void and partners that you work with. So what are you doing to prepare for this greater need? Great question, Tish. Our partners change because what we end up doing is laying early road foundation. And often, especially if it's a national chain, they will end up, as they appropriately should, partnering with some of the national food banks so that they can optimize true efficiency in getting all the food out there. But in our early startups of the beginning of, you know, where I was getting neighborhood stores, those neighborhood stores were Trader Joe's and Starbucks and Costco, and then would be all the way down to the one-off little local cafe or the caterers or a special food event. And the big issues are not only what are they doing with the food and how can they share it, but how can they responsibly reuse it? How can they make sure that every single part of it has been reused so that it doesn't become something they have to give away? It should be that they can hold on to it and maximize their opportunities. They're a business. You want businesses to thrive. I think on a human basis, though, you also want businesses to care about those that they can help. Absolutely. And then it's a fine line. So when truly every effort has been made, and that's part of what we jump in and do, it's not only the connection, but the prevention. How do you stop people from being hungry? How do you help the businesses to use the best of what their resources are? And also, how do you keep it out of the landfill so that we're not contributing to a huge environmental impact? And I don't know if you know about the China National Sword Program, They had been buying our paper and plastics for many, many years. And the recycling industry has moved in great leaps and bounds about trying best to keep things out of the landfill. And then very recently, they've announced that they no longer want to purchase a large part of our paper and plastics because we have too high of a contamination level that is on the paper and the plastics. It's not clean enough for them to use it for what they're trying to make new products out of. I was just at a national conference a few months ago where the waste industry and the EPA and all kinds of people are truly trying to say, okay, 
What paper mills can we reignite and what new uses for plastic can we do? So it's bringing the United States to an opportunity rather than let's look at this as not being a problem, but let's look at this as an opportunity to do two things, to reemerge new industries that they can create from it and for single-use containers to kind of become a thing of the past. I don't think we realize when we talk about containers. We are quite mindless as a society when it comes to packaging. When you are dealing with this at Urban Harvester, are you having to repackage food? How do you disperse this food? We do not touch the food. Remember, we literally move from the receiver to the donor. But in doing so, we are always asked, well, how do you want it to be packaged or how could we do it? And so now the research that we're doing, the alliances that we're making, are in looking at those stakeholders who do have responsible practices, who are making a positive impact. This was one of the big things. And I think for those that are listening, this is the thing that I hadn't realized until I was literally just doing this hands-on and site visiting every nonprofit agency that was getting the food and understanding who their clients were and what the challenges were. A lot of people live in transitional housing and a lot of people don't even have a full-blown oven. They may only have perhaps a toaster oven or a microwave. And so that needs to be some kind of packaging that makes sense for them to be able to use, for them to be able to reheat, for them to be able to share. So the whole single-use thing, if it can be something that can go all the way down to the end user and you know where it's going and why it was being donated and what it can be, if literally a caterer is picking a foil container or something that's a paperboard product that can be reheated, frozen, or microwaved, you've made a huge difference. So those are, again, all of the pieces of the network that we've created. And all of these all have to play and orchestrate together for this to be the right music to all work well together. And keeping food out of the landfill, connecting it to the places that need it, also does a great service for not contaminating all the packaging. Absolutely. And I don't know why we are so dense as a society with this. We are failing in so many ways. You know, Linda, this conversation today barely scratches the surface. In breaking down how you have created this remarkable network, and you are truly a solution to combat hunger. I want to invite everyone to come back next week for part two of this compelling conversation with Linda Hess. Linda, thank you so much for educating and inspiring us today. You truly are a hero. You connect the dots. You don't have a fleet of trucks or a large facility, but through your efforts of connectivity, you have set up a vast network to get fresh food to those who would otherwise, in so many instances, not have proper nutrition, or any nutrition for that matter. I am still in awe of how you began Urban Harvester in 2009 with a Prius, a laptop, and a plan to feed 100,000 people who were in real need, those who need fresh food 
Urban Harvester was launched in 2012, and you met your goal of 100,000 in 2016, and today you and your organization have risen up to feed hungry Americans, where our government is failing families across this nation who are truly struggling to survive. One in six people are not sure where their next meal is coming from. Urban Harvester reflects an inspiring success story of connecting untapped food resources to the nearest shelter, kitchen pantry, and to senior citizens who would simply not have food to eat. To get more information about Linda Hess and Urban Harvester, you can go to urbanharvester.org. That's capital U-R-B-A-N. Harvester with the capital H A R V E S T E R dot org. I want to invite everyone to America Speaks podcast with Tish Lampert on Apple Podcasts. And also, please go to our website at www.tishlampert.org for news of my forthcoming book. And once again, I want to thank James Koblenz and Kim Langbacker, without whom this episode would not be possible. And remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice.